In today's episode, we're going to continue our interrogation series talking about approach techniques, which is a term for communication strategies used during interrogation by the military and civilian intelligence community. You'll likely find you recognize many of these techniques as you probably use them every day, and some of them just seem very simple and very common sense, and some of them are a little more elaborate. They're used in the positive and negative on how we get people to feel about themselves in order to get them to open up and communicate. And sometimes giving people a negative feeling actually is what does it. So as we talk about as many of these 19 as I can, I'll give you some examples on a few of them and show you how they can work in a positive or negative light. The one thing you'll find if you practice these techniques or if you were like me and I happened to end up being an interrogator one day, it's not about how effective can you use this technique. It's can you even recognize that it's not working because that's what's going to make the difference. That's what we're going to talk about tonight right here on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight. Welcome to the Gray Man Concepts Podcast, Episode 12. For those of you who followed the Gray Man Concepts Facebook page, which there is a link in the description, you can see within the last couple of days, as mentioned on the previous podcast, I put up a link to the military's manual, the Army's manual, for Human Intelligence Collection, which has all the rules and not all the rules, but all the guidelines, strategies, techniques you used when being a human intelligence collector. And it's very important, as we discussed in the last podcast, because it's a manual that agencies and the rest of the military have to follow when it comes to interrogation. There is a section in there on approaches and termination. When you go in there and read about approaches, you'll see it might seem a little broader than what I stated. I was speaking specifically to approaches for interrogation, which needs to be spoke of in a specific manner because some of it has legal considerations as in some approaches you can only use in that situation. You'll find in the manual it discusses approach techniques for elicitation. That's running sources or handling assets. It's when you're going out, you're talking to people that might be criminals, might be good guys, might be office workers, whoever they are, to get information. You'll also see there's a section discussing approaches for debriefing. Debriefing is a whole nother human intelligence collection mission, but it has to do with Basically, people are going to be in a situation where they may be exposed to some information that you or your agency or whoever is interested in. And you ask them very politely, would you be interested in speaking with us when you get back? And that's pretty much the whole conversation. It doesn't go much beyond that. You don't get to sensitize them, tell them anything you're doing because you want them to be safe. And it's just so that they can go take their trip, do their thing. And when they come back, talk to you and maybe you get some intel value out of it. One of the things to know is that I call them communication strategies, and I think that's the simplest and easiest way to put them. One thing the book really kind of pushes is it's a method of control, but there's a lot of methods of controlling a detainee, but we don't care about that here in this podcast because we don't have anybody locked in a closet. Not that they all get locked in a closet, but there's times I wish I could have. So when we look at these, some of the simplest approaches to look at I always start with is the who, what, where, when, why, and how. Those are the questions I always start with. It's called the direct approach. It's kind of funny because sometimes when I ask people, what do you think the direct approach is? And it's like, oh, some people just aren't very direct when they talk to you. And it's like, well, yeah, maybe it's not quite that. Let's be a little more specific. So it's who, what, where, when, why, and how. Now, this is why this is important. I don't know if I've discussed it on this podcast previously. I definitely did on my YouTube channel. Was realizing what a good and a bad question is. So when you ask a question that the most logical conclusion a reasonable person will see you're looking for is yes or no. That's a horrible question. That's why I hate it in movies or I hate it when I see cops do it in movies. It makes me cringe. I'm like, man, do they really do that? Because it's just stupid. It's a horrible question. And here's why. One is you make it easy for somebody to lie. And the reason you're making it easier for them to lie is you remember about 70% of all communication is nonverbal. 
somehow we kind of intrinsically know that, even if we're not aware of those numbers. And when you just say something as simple as no, then there's no timeline there. There's nothing. You're not getting a narrative response of any type. You're not forcing them to form sentences. So you're missing all these indicators of deception. They also have body language for about this long. Start counting. No, that's how fast. There's no body language there that you can really read. You would have phrased those questions to where the logical answer is not yes or no. The biggest reason for that, in my view, is it really knocks out your ability to detect deception and would make several of these previous podcasts worthless. It's why I do some of this in the order I'm doing it, to expose you to certain ideas and things and then go back later and dive deeper into certain topics. The other thing, too, is it's a more professional way to speak, and it's more uh, inviting, actually, to ask somebody a normal question using one of these terms, who, what, where, when, why, and how. There's also the fact that if it's a situation where they think you don't know or don't know the details and you pose that question in a certain way to force them to give an answer, their reaction might be a little bit of shock and awe. It might be just a simple question of, this guy knows more than I think he does. And logically, it actually wouldn't make sense. The person comes in there thinking, I'm Bob the terrorist, but they don't have any idea that I'm Bob the terrorist. And then somebody walks in the room and says, hey, Bob, how long you been a terrorist in this organization? It can really throw them off because they're thinking, man, I was arrested with 50 people and I'm just another guy. They have no idea who I am. And then now all of a sudden they know and he's just making assumptions based on that question. And that'll cause him to take a second or two in some situation of its shock. We'll start to see the body language, possibly the perspiration, the reaction, see the change in tone of voice. Depends on when you ask this question, of course. And you start to see all these pieces that come together. Gives you the ability to detect deception and figure out where to go from there. You're probably sitting there thinking, this might be interesting, but I don't know how this helps me in my everyday life. One example I always give is kids, um, usually teenagers. I give this example because I think most people can translate it to something else in their life. Um, you could probably do it just with an employee or coworker as well. But the idea is the parents are going out for the evening and they're leaving Bobby at home and he's not supposed to go out with Jimmy to the party. And that's the rules and that's what they're doing. So the parents go out, they have their evening, dinner, dancing, whatever they're doing. They come home, they see Bobby and they say, how was the party? Or they say, what time did you and Jimmy go to the party? Or what time did Jimmy pick you up? Those questions, especially on somebody in that situation, causes a whole lot of psychological trauma, essentially. It's not because they're young and they're teenagers because they're thinking they got away with it. This is assuming they even did anything. But if they would have just said, hey, did you go to the party with Jimmy? No. I mean, that's the whole answer. That's why you feel like your kids don't talk to you sometimes. But imagine if you asked one of these other questions. Here's the thing, too. Let's say you asked one of these questions. They didn't go to the party. They're not just going to say no. That doesn't make sense. What time did Jimmy pick you up for the party? No, that's not logical. That's going to stand out. They're going to form sentences in response, be like, Jimmy didn't pick me up for the party. But this is why you got to look for detection, because that doesn't mean they didn't go to the party. Or they say, I didn't go to the party with Jimmy at all. You know, maybe they went with somebody else. So these create follow-up questions and follow-up situations. When you just get a bad question that's looking for a yes or no answer and you just get a cold no or a yes, yes just sounds like confirmation and it may not actually be confirmation because your question might have been that horrible. And no just leaves you shut down cold and you have no follow-up to go with. So don't think that yes or no questions are only bad if somebody says no. They're actually just as bad, if not worse, if somebody says yes. So in these situations, hey, uh, what time did Jimmy pick you up for the party? Jimmy didn't pick me up at the party. Oh, well, who picked you up? Nobody picked me up. I'm like, oh, so do you, did you go to the party with Jimmy? No, I didn't go to the party with Jimmy. See, nothing at this point indicates we actually didn't go to the party. 
nothing. It only indicates that we're locking out certain pieces of information like Jimmy didn't take him, Jimmy may not have met him, Jimmy may not have been at the party. The other thing too, when you're asking these questions, you don't want to get locked into an answer as that's the end of the story. So if you went through these questions, just a few of them, like I just said, and you're like, well, did Jimmy go to the party? And they go, no, Jimmy didn't even go to the party. Now a lot of people like freak out and be like, you'd only know that if you were there. Like they draw this conclusion, but we're like, well, you know, Jimmy could have called Bobby and told him he didn't go to the party or he heard it sucked or something happened. So don't jump to conclusions. One of the things I always tell people is best case scenario, the quality of your answer you're going to get is going to be based on the quality of the question that you give. So keep that in mind. When you ask a question, if you don't like that answer, is it just you don't like the answer? Are you presuming you know the answer already? Or was your question just that bad? And it's usually going to be your question was that bad, followed by you already had a presumption. And you never, ever want to go with, no matter how well you think you know anybody, especially somebody that you're more dominant over, like a child or an employee, regardless of age, is the whole, you know what I'm saying position, especially if you say that to them. That is stupid and that's an assumption. You know what I'm thinking. You know what I mean. No, they don't know. You're making an assumption. And that's always a bad idea, especially when you're talking to people you don't know that well, you're trying to get information from them. And that also shows a lack of emotional control and you're not controlling that situation. Of all the possible bad things that could happen in a real interrogation, the one I want you to take home is the whole idea of, you know what I mean, you know what I'm saying, that type of thing. That is stupid and it's horrible. It shuts down communication, it puts up roadblocks, it's negative. It puts you in an accusatory state against somebody else and puts them on the defensive even if they don't want to be. There's nothing positive about that statement. And while there are good negative statements to have in this type of conversation, that one is not ever going to be one of them. One of the other ones that's most commonly used is called emotional pride and ego. Some people call it peony up, being peony, being pride and ego, peony up, peony down. But it's emotional pride and ego. You're playing on the emotional pride or the emotional ego of this individual, up being more of a positive, down being more of a negative. And this is where we truly get into manipulation, and we see it a lot of times in relationships in our own country or on television where people work each other over through pride and ego. So when you see or hear conversations and you see them on reality shows or on TV shows, I've seen with people in everyday life, even people to check out stand there, I'm in a serious relationship, don't even know each other, is they make these little tiny personal attacks. Something that would be going after the person's pride or ego, even something as simple as making fun of a shirt they wear, which might just be two buddies, to complimenting or maybe ingratiating them with some sort of compliment can be very simple and that can be a very easy pride and ego conversation. And before I go any farther, one of the things I got to tell you is a lot of these approaches you actually will learn if you're paying attention to what you're doing. You could be running four, five, six of them at the same time in one sentence and just not realize and it's based on everything else you've done. They're all a setup and you're all kind of, you're not fishing, but you are casting a line in the water to see if you get not necessarily a hit, just a reaction. Is this thing going to work or is it not going to work and I need to move on to something else? Did this work for the last 10 times I've talked to this individual and it's no longer going to work? Or I'm just not having a good day and nothing seems to be working. So you cast a line out on one thing that probably never works and you get a hit on it. Maybe that day it works. Here's why. People change. Just like you, so does the person you're talking to. Their attitudes change. What's going on in their mind changes. Nothing's ever the same. So you can identify patterns, look for solutions when it comes to strategies to communicate to people. But that doesn't mean they're going to work that way all the time. Always keep that in mind. One thing can work 99% of the time and never ever work again. And one thing could never work 99 times, and then all of a sudden it's the only thing that works. It's just that simple. 
But pride and ego are big ones, and we see people use them on each other all the time. In fact, I was just watching uh, Captain Marvel the other day. And it's because I like the Marvel movies, but near the end of the movie, uh, Rambo, the friend of Captain Marvel, who's got the little girl, she, you know, she's talking about going up in space, helping her save these people, fight the bad guys, and the little girl's telling her to go, and she's, no, I'm not leaving my daughter. And the little girl looks at her mother and says something along the lines of, I don't think you're setting a good example for your daughter. Which was funny, sort of speaking in the third person, but it's a play on pride and ego. And it's uh, hard to say, was that a peony up or a peony down? It sounds like a peony down because, hey, you know, you're not setting a good example. You're doing a bad thing. Which was funny how she did, especially being the kid who's probably eight, nine, ten years old. But it could have been a positive thing. Could have been reminding her of, at least in that situation, the type of person she is, the changes she could make, the positive things she could do for the world or the universe. And I get it's a movie, but I'm just saying sometimes things look one way and they're the other, or they're actually both. So don't get too caught up in that. But another example of how this works was a suicide bomber. And I still laugh about this, but suicide bombers, a lot of people don't realize how they work, meaning how they get that job. A lot of places they're forced. And whether or not they're forced, they're often promised things like, we'll take care of your family. And there's all kinds of benefits to it. For some people, it's the be-all, end-all martyr situation. Like, man, Allah Akbar, I'm the guy. I get to do this. And then other ones are scared to death, but then they know if they don't do it, their whole family's going to be killed. So you never know the situation. But talking to this guy, he was the Allah Akbar, this is the greatest thing I ever get to do kind of guy. And the thing was, this guy exuded pride. He sat there and crossed his arms off and put his head back and just kind of grinned, kind of the I'm not saying nothing kind of guy, you ain't got shit on me type guy, all this stuff. And uh, he actually turned out to be pretty easy to crack. We just took a shot at it. First swing, we got a home run. And it was something along the lines of what we call a monologue in the beginning, but kind of introducing it where we start running approaches. and like, all right, this is why we're here type thing. One, one to two sentences. Like, well, we caught you. You're the suicide bomber. Didn't get to uh, detonate. We see you're really proud of that. We're not sure why, because you are a failure. You're not going to be a martyr now. And then we know you're a member of this organization. And when you fail, they're going to kill your family. So your wife and kids are probably already dead. Or you'll be killed when you get out of here. Because if you don't ever say anything, we can't officially charge you with nothing, which means you'll be released. So basically, because you couldn't pull that trigger... You just killed your whole family and probably your extended family too. So I'm wondering how you feel about that. Through that process, we just watched that grin and that pride just kind of crush and the arms go down and the face drop and the utter shock of the situation of, oh my God, didn't think about that. Didn't realize this could be a bad thing. Thought I won up the Americans, but no, I just got my whole family killed. So we not only peony down the guy, which was a very easy swing because we could see how much pride he had already. It brought him back down to earth and it turned everything around on him. He no longer thought about us. He was just there. He was just like, man, here's what I did. Here's how I screwed up. And then it became us saying, well, let's see if we can get you out of here. You know, more of a, let's talk about your buddies type situation because all we do is submit paperwork. You know, this is all Iraqi governance. Now they get to decide whether or not they want to keep you. So to help me out, you need to give me something here. Now I just want to point out, even though we're discussing like, this pride and ego down situation. We're actually running another approach at the same time. There's a approach that's called emotional love and emotional hate. We're actually running love at the same time we're discussing pride and ego down. 
This is because we're discussing the family that he loves, he cares about, and what's going to happen to them. And the thing is, if he didn't have this reaction, or if we were just guessing if he had a family and he didn't, not only would we have not got anywhere, it actually would have made him realize we were guessing and he would just assume we're doing that on anything and wouldn't believe anything we said and would take a lot longer to crack this guy. We just happened to know he had a family. So that's two approaches at once at a minimum. But love and hate are very common and it's about things you love or hate and usually it's about people. Roughly about half these approaches are called emotion approaches, which doesn't matter, but just realize you are playing on people's emotions. That's why they tend to work. It's why it's manipulation and it's also shitty. And it's easy to figure out if somebody's doing it. So even if you don't get in a position to really try these or don't think you'll ever really purposely use them, you can at least recognize them when people are doing them to you and you can shut them down or flip them around on them pretty easily. Now to add in a third approach, because an approach isn't just a sentence, it's a communication strategy. We're talking about peony down on this guy, prying ego, this suicide bomber, like, hey, you failed type thing. Your family's going to die which is right where love plays in, love of family. And then you also turn it into a hate of comrades, an emotional hate approach. Because from there, you can go into the whole situation about, yeah, you screwed up, but it's your buddies that are going to kill your family or they talked you into this or they're never going to pay you down, depending on if you can work these things out. And it's just to give you an example of how several of these actually happen at the same time. The reason it's communication strategy is a lot of people just do this, especially the manipulation ones. You've probably seen it. Um, and it's not uncommon for people in relationships to do it to each other, either playing around or just being pissed off and mean. But the idea is learning to recognize it, one, and also planning for it. How do I use this? How do I plan to use this in a conversation? The next thing is also how to react during the conversation without drawing attention to yourself and move from one idea to the other. So it's a little more active thinking and planning in a conversation that isn't always just there in a regular conversation. It takes a lot of time experience doing this, a lot of hours and hours and years of experience before you can just do it in any conversation. But here's the thing. Focus on, especially look at that book, focus on the emotional ones. One, they're easier. And it's not that they're simple. It's just the other ones are really that much harder, especially if you haven't been trained in them and know what to do. So if you look in that and you see some of the later on ones that aren't emotional approaches like file and dossier or futility like resistance is futile or i have all this paperwork and i know it's you that type of thing it's very difficult to do number one and number two it's not normal to everyday conversation it's not normal to the interactions we typically have so it takes a lot of practice time and energy so focus on the ones that you can do without putting anything other than mental practice in and you don't have to create product the other thing you can do is recognize these emotional approaches is a way to manipulate people when you need to in a conversation. So let's take this guy again, the suicide bomber. In reality, it didn't work out this way, nor would it work out this way with a suicide bomber, but it could in a comparable situation where it's something not as drastic. Where we're like, look, here's how you failed and how it's going to affect your life. It's essentially the general version of what we said to him. And that's a P&E down. However, comma, if you help us out and we can get you out of here, you're going to be the big hero. Now we're going back to P&E up. The idea here is we're manipulating people through their emotions because people are tied greatly to their emotions, most of them. There's very few people that are not. The thing is, we think about it a lot. We're drawn to people that are like us or we want to be like. We judge ourselves and look at ourselves far more harshly than other people do. We care about more things about ourselves than other people do. And we don't even think about it or realize it. And in situations, good or bad, even if we remember the person that did it, unless it's short of trauma, as long as it's not trauma, 
It's just a positive or negative everyday situation, no matter if it was really mean or just kind of off-putting or just super lovely, wonderful day or just, you know, a nice little thing that happened. Even when we talk about it, we tend to start or direct to the situation, draw the picture of the situation or where I was or whatever, and not going straight to the source of what happened. And that's because it's all those other pieces about where we were, what happened that we describe because that's what our emotions tied to. And the thing is, we're actually focused on ourselves. Even the most unselfish person, when they tell these stories in the moment, even in the second, they're focused solely on themselves and their emotion, which isn't a selfish thing at all. It's just the reality of the construction of the conversation. And that's what they're tied to. And that's why these approaches are so great when you're trying to be great. What you're doing is giving yourself time to talk longer to a person, be more in their face, like they can see you. But if you're able to swing that conversation as a way to get them to have an emotional response, especially if you can control that emotional response, you not only can get them to do anything you want, you can make it to where they don't even remember who you are or what you look like. I've had very long conversations with people wearing very obvious but not completely outlandish clothing as part of a test and exercise. They remember very little about how I look like. And it's because of how I manipulated them by their emotions and got them to think and feel certain things about themselves. On more than one occasion, I have done this completely unintentionally to the point where I realized what was happening was just coming naturally and I stopped myself. An example is I went to a Jiffy Loop to get an oil change. At the time, I had an FJ Cruiser. And after they'd been down there for a while, probably getting close to the time where I think they'd be getting pretty close to being done, they're like, hey, we got a slight delay. We got something going on. And I was like, all right, what's, what's the issue? And I'm not a car guy. People know that. <laughs> some of you do because I know some of you that listen to this. But the part where the oil filter is, there was something down there that was made of plastic. I don't know if it was like the cover or some sort of bolt. But anyway, something normally made of metal was made of plastic. It takes a certain special tool and they didn't have that tool. And they didn't have that tool because the store manager took tools home like he wasn't supposed to do and didn't bring them back quite often. So then it became a more of a serious situation. So even though I told the guy not to worry about it and I'm nothing to do that day, I didn't care. I was just reading a newspaper or whatever I was doing. And I was like, yeah, we didn't hurt your car, but we did break that cover. So we we're running over to the Napa store to get a new one. And I was like, well, I appreciate you telling me. And then it became a situation of him, of course, apologizing for the inconvenience, being very happy that I wasn't upset. And I just didn't care. It was the thing. I wasn't trying to do anything. And I just looked at him. I went, look, man, it's nothing personal. I'm not worried about it. I mean, your manager is the jerk here. If you hadn't taken those tools home, we wouldn't be in this situation in the first place. Now I get a customer here longer got to go over to the store and do all this and blah, 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 blah. And it takes longer, you know, and it feels like you're wasting somebody's time. And I don't feel like that, but I guess you got lucky. It's me because some guys are bigger jerks than this. And anybody who saw that and knew me would thought I'd be working this guy. And at the time was not even thinking about it. I was just trying to be nice, not caring. I was just sitting there doing whatever. We ended up talking one or two more times, BS a little bit. I tried to calm him down a little bit because he was pretty uh, embarrassed, I think, and humiliated by the situation. And then he talked about, you know, obviously I'm going to give you a discount, but what I'm doing here is he handed me the filter. He goes, look, these filters aren't cheap. You can bring this in for your next one. You don't have to pay for this filter. It'll knock like five bucks off your cost, but that should help you out. And I was like, all right. And then when it was taking longer to come back from the store, he came over and said, look, hold on to that filter, but you're not going to use that the next time. And I was like, why? He goes, well, I'm going to give you this. I put it in the system and I gave him, gave me this coupon. He's like, your next oil change is going to be free. And he goes, this is taking so long because you've been here like almost two hours. I'm not even charging you for this one. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. So I sat there for a second thinking about these conversations, what had gone on in the last hour and a half. And I realized 
it was like I was working the guy. Like, this is exactly how I would have done it. I just wasn't trying to. But it's a good example of how it works. Like, this guy was the opposite of this suicide bomber. He was already feeling pretty bad. Now, that can work. You can actually go and dig harder on the guy. But the thing is, let's say I was trying to get something out of this, like the free stuff, or if this was an interrogation intel. While that can work, the flies with honey thing is what you want to always try first. Because I could have very easily made this guy feel like garbage and then never got anything out of it except for a standard discount, which I wasn't looking for that. But if this was intel, I wanted some information and I shut the guy completely down, yeah, it doesn't help. So he was already down in the dumps. I was just like, hey man, don't worry about it. It's this other guy's fault. It's not your fault. You should feel lucky because a lot of guys are jerks. I just don't care. I'm like, no big deal. Stuff happens. You know, whatever. It really made the guy feel better. Even he was willing to talk to me more. You know, I mentioned we had one or two more conversations. So we're just BS conversations talking about whatever. Nothing to do with the work being done at hand. And it's a good example how you get people talking and how you can use positive feelings and emotions to not only manipulate them, but to get them to cooperate and do what you want. I very easily could have done this on purpose. I just didn't that time. But I have exactly done that before just to see if it would work. Now, there are some approaches that are actually normal parts of some conversations, especially on social media, that never work unless you're actually interrogating. Almost never work. They're just horrible. One is called proving your identity or establishing your identity, which is fun. It can work in an interrogation setting because it's about, I think you're Bob the terrorist and you're really not. You know, that's not going to work out for you. So it could be that this guy is Bob the terrorist, but you want to get him to talk. So you're like, yeah, everything's you're Bob the terrorist, but I know you're not Bob the terrorist. And that kind of shocks them. And you can get them in a position where they want to prove they're actually the bad guy, which has happened many times. Or just to prove that there's some other person, whether they're a bad guy or not. And sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. And it can be very difficult. But you see this on social media a lot when people get in these little pissing contests on Facebook posts or whatever, or like Twitter gets all stupid. And people talk about like, who are you? Or like, why are you the expert? Why should I listen to you? And I've had people do this to me and I'm thinking, like, I think the better question is, who are you? Like, why would I owe you this explanation? Because I don't. And a mature person or a person who's thinking level-headed not getting emotionally attached to these statements like they matter tends to have those responses and not get worried about it. I mean, like, I, I don't know who you are or why you think I owe you something like an explanation, but I don't. And not only is that interesting to me because people tend not to have that reaction when they should, there's a lot of people out there spouting credibility or options in all kinds of career fields, especially people in the military, where I'm like, man, somebody should go after this guy because he's not this dude. Or, you know, he should be able to easily prove this. Like, this is a lofty expectation. So there is an area there where somebody does have a responsibility to prove something. But I see guys like in coming from the world of SOCOM that were shooters per se. They call themselves things like operators when they're not. Or they make claims and suggest or infer they've done certain things. And I always think, why would you do that? You had a great career. You were one of the special few people anyway. What is it about yourself that you feel so badly about that you need to make yourself bigger than what you already are? So I, I never get it. But it's a simple conversation or situation where establish your identity is very difficult, especially over social media, to try to get somebody to do or to care about. The other thing is, why does your opinion matter? When I used to train people, I was training some people one time, and I was working with a guy from a special forces group who had retired, and then I came from that community as well. Well, not being special forces, I have a background in that area in a different way, but we had kind of similar backgrounds. We're training this guy. We go through a weekend, and then this guy's like, how do you guys know this stuff? Like, I can't remember how he asked it, but it was very clear he wanted proof. He wanted us to establish our identity. 
We're like, all right. So we gave him a simple overview. And he was like, oh, okay, cool. Like what we said was good enough for him. And I was thinking, who is this idiot? We just said some stuff. He doesn't know what half that crap is. If he did, he never would ask that question in the first place. So it's like he wanted justification, but he didn't know how to identify that it was justification. That's part of the reason why. So establishing your identity is generally a horrible idea that doesn't work in everyday conversation. I don't recommend it. One of the approaches that does work, especially in relationships, is actually called separation. So in an interrogation setting, what separation is, is how you take a person out of their environment long term with no exposure to anybody. This technique usually starts around 30 days, sometimes can be shorter, but usually takes at least a month. And sometimes it goes on for several months. So what we do in an interrogation situation is we would add uh, kind of like special housing units, shoes as they call them, like in a prison. Using our FBI teams, we'd created a couple of prison cells that were built with plywood and it was kind of bad construction on purpose with cracks and stuff that you could kind of see through and hear through. And it looked like normal or better than normal construction on any place in Iraq at the time. We did it that way because we had microphones in there and we wanted them to see each other and we had a hidden video camera. So we would put a person in there for at least 30 days and the only time they'd see anybody would be a guard who didn't even hardly look at it and bring them food and water. Nobody else went in there but us. Um, if we went in there at all to do anything, we'd make sure the lights were out. It was nighttime and they were sleeping. So even if they woke up, we didn't have the lights on. They couldn't see us anyway. And then occasionally we might put somebody in the cell next to them to talk. So we'd run this 30-day separation at a minimum. And what we did with one guy is we separated the guy for like, I don't know, 30 days, 60 days or something at one point. Brought him into the interrogation booth, let him sit there and just kind of sweat and wait for a few hours. And he happened to love this one interrogator. And we let him see the interrogator walk by the door one or two times. And eventually the interrogator came in and sat down and the guy wanted to talk. And he had the interpreter tell him, not yet, not yet. I got to get all this stuff together. But we have several hours today. And for the next few days, we're going to be able to talk. And this guy was excited because he liked this interrogator. Thought he was getting by on the guy and he wasn't. He just loved talking to him. And he's sitting in there and he's like, all right, so how are you doing? And it was translated, and right as the time that guy was about to speak, he held up his fingers like, hold on, I forgot something. And then he walked out of the room. And then a couple hours later, we came and got the guy and put him back in his cell for another 30 days. And then the next time or the time after we brought him out and actually did talk to him, he didn't shut up for days, and he actually gave us a lot of good information. So it worked. But it's not a situation you just jumped into. We knew after working this guy 20 hours a day for several weeks with his brothers that it could very well work. So how do we see this in everyday life and relationships? Well, most relationships now seem to rely heavily on phone calls and texting because we don't see people that much. I'm not talking about when you're married to somebody, although it can happen there too. And it's where you get ghosted and people don't follow or respond to your text, your phone calls or whatever. What we find in these situations, one person tends to be chasing the other and showing interest. And sometimes showing too much interest or chasing the other turns them off and gets them not wanting to talk to you, which is very simple in this situation because every time we saw that guy or somebody went in and brought him stuff. Nobody responded to him, but he always wanted to see not just an interrogator, but the specific interrogator. He was chasing them and we showed no interest. And then it was after he quit doing that for a while that we finally would talk to him. And it works the same way. Any person that's read a relationship book or has got any amount of game, as they would say whatsoever, knows that when you cut off somebody or you don't want to see him anymore, or maybe you're just distancing yourself for whatever reason, the more they come after you, the more you'll stop responding and get away from them. And then if you ignore them and try not to pursue them, eventually they will contact you. The thing is, it takes weeks or months 
That's why any person that's a counselor or even a player, as they say, and wants to help somebody with a bad relationship, tells them how long it's going to take them to be on their own. And while theories and timelines vary, a lot of people tend to go around this 10 to 12 week timeline, or at least two months, but usually 10 to 12 weeks of no contact, even if you have to make the agreement with the person. Give yourself time to think and be free and work on yourself, whatever you're going to do. Also, because if people get down in the dumps and just eat Cheetos and drink beer on the couch, they're going to do it for at least that long anyway. Or if it's a girl, watch romantic comedies and burn through Kleenex like we see in the movie. But the thing is, it's giving yourself that time and distance. And if you do it, things can work out better for you. But what we find in these situations is if you're trying to pursue somebody and they're not responding to you, don't blow their phone up. Don't do all these things. See the signs early. Earlier is better. Then just stop contacting them. Eventually, they'll start contacting you. It's just reality. It's human nature. It's how psychology and our brains work. That's all the separation technique is. So even though separation technique is actually a higher level technique, it requires a general officer's signature. So it's like the first flag officer in your chain of command in the military. So first one-star general or admiral, or it could be higher for the first one. In the civilian side, there's an equivalent person in an agency that would hold a job or position or pay grade similar to that, but it is a process that requires approval. Good news, you don't need that. You can just stop talking to people and they'll eventually start tracking you down. Now, here's the thing. If you chase somebody for too long and then stop talking to them, you may not hear from them. So you have to learn how to gauge that because you got to stop early. Then once you stop and you don't contact them and they start chasing you, or contacting you, if you don't eventually respond and you let that go on too long, they'll get through whatever's going on in their head and just decide not to talk to you. And then if you try calling them back again, the cycle starts over and nobody gets anywhere. So you got to identify early, hey, I'm going to cut this off. And then when they're trying to chase you, that can go on longer. You just don't want to let it go on too long or they're not going to hear from you or you're not going to hear from them. So you got to think about that as being very planned and controlled. If you don't plan it and control it, it's not going to work out for you at all. And this works not just in relationship. This works on the job with your buddies. It doesn't matter what it's for. It's a very simple process that works out. You just got to practice it. Just be careful because you could get in a lot of trouble. Because, man, if your wife or girlfriend heard me saying this, they'd probably say something to you like, yeah, go ahead, do it. See what happens. If you got a response like that, the only thing that should tell you is that it works. It does work. That's why they're getting upset. Don't do that to me because they know it works. Other good ones that work fairly easily are what we call fear up and fear down. Fear up is kind of the idea of playing on people's fears if they're pre-existing, which in an interrogation setting you have to be very careful with because it's very easy to break laws like that if you're not careful. And it's also easy to get in the world of coercion because coercion is illegal. It's just as illegal and just as bad as torture if you don't know what you're doing. But it's much easier to do in your everyday life with somebody. And I'll give you a simple example. And that's just very common with kids like your kid wants to go hang out or go to a party. They want to go do something. They want something they're going to go do. And they need to do their chores first. One of the most common things I always heard and people hear a lot is, if you don't do your chores, you're not going to go hang out with Jimmy. Well, that's fear up in a way. It's also negative, And it comes across like you're being negative, And they have no sense of accomplishment or reward. So all you got to do is change the words and say, look, you can go hang out with Jimmy as long as you do these chores first. And then you can go. It sends a different message. It's positive. It's them doing something for themselves, whatever needs to be done, and they get a reward. So you want to offer people the reward more than you want to offer them what sounds like punishment. Now, to be clear, I always push the positive idea in everyday interaction, what this is really being about, because that's going to get you farther almost all the time. 
in a real interrogation, that's not always the case. Being negative works just as much as being positive. It depends on reading your person and what you're doing. But it comes down to sincerity. That's why we talked about building rapport, mirroring and matching. That's why it's important you have to establish that rapport before you start doing these types of things. And rapport sometimes is immediate or natural, especially if you know somebody. But you have to realize what you're doing. So if you would always tell a kid a way that sounds like punishment, you're not going anywhere if you don't do this first. You can very easily set a pattern of being negative and that they need to do things for you. Whereas if you're going to set a pattern, it'd be better to set the positive one saying, if you do this first, you can go. And if you do that enough, you'll actually see somebody like, hey, I want to go do this, so I'm going to do these chores now if that's okay. They'll actually come to you seeking permission to get what they want, which I've seen in interrogation and just working with normal people all the time. I actually run approaches on people constantly when I train them and then come back later and explain it to them. Now, going back to get my oil change, one of the reasons that worked, even though I wasn't trying to do it, was body language. Remember, Body language is always there. I saw his body language and his attitude and the tone of his voice and everything he was doing. I knew he was being sincere, like it really bothered him. And there's times we see people say stuff to us and they seem disingenuous. It's because they're full of it. It's deceptive. Even if you can't identify the deception through their body language or their tone of voice or what they're saying, it's you pick up on it and it tends to be body language. That's why I talked about body language earlier because it plays a big part in this. It's all steps and phases. If you can't purposely recognize the body language or mirror and match or build the rapport, you have a hard time making these things work for you. And whether you're doing something positive or negative, one of the things I talked about in the last podcast was if something worked, I would tend to go to it or go to it earlier, maybe not immediately, because I didn't want to set a pattern of doing the same thing all the time. Because people eventually will, at least in their subconscious, pick up that you're doing the same thing all the time and it's causing them to have a reaction. That's why you need a variety of things you can do. You try to identify as many different things at work so you can bounce around between those and make them work for you instead of just sticking to one that sets a pattern. It's more noticeable when it's negative using that example of your kids and whether or not they get to do chores to hang out with Jimmy. And it's because generally speaking for most people, negative emotions seem more prominent or more noticeable. And it's because we don't like them. That's why the positive ones tend to work more often. And if you use this example of doing chores, one thing I mentioned was when you use this pattern, if you have a pattern, the positive one's better because they're getting something out of it. They're seeing a reward. They're doing something and earning something. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if you go the route that sounds negative, more of the fear up in that example, you start to set this pattern of you're doing something to them. So one thing that's going to get people to react, to do things you want, is they're focused on themselves. Because as much as we hate it, we're always focused on ourselves. And instead of focusing on you, and this person's doing it to me, where they think about you and they talk about you, instead they get to talk about themselves, which is what people really want to do. Even if they say they don't, that's what we do. We talk about the good things going on in our lives and what we did. So in that example, you're less memorable. They tell that story to somebody, they're talking about what they did, the reward they got, the accomplishment they made, instead of this jerk over here did this to me. I saw it all the time in the military, people not getting stuff they wanted, thought they were owed things, seemed entitled. And the conversations I saw more often than not, it was actually what was said to them could have been said differently, could have had the same result where they didn't get anything, but they would have not talked about it in such a negative light, like the army screwed me or people are against me. When that's not the situation, the situation is they're not doing the things they need to do and nobody knew how to communicate that to them, how to lead them. Because that's what this is, this is a form of leadership. If you do this correctly, you're leading people. And not leading them in a way where you're asking questions to give them 
the opportunity to give you an answer you want to hear. It's not that type of leading. It's leading them like a leader, getting them to do what you want, motivating them. That's what all this is. So just keep in mind, before you start trying this on people, think about conversations you've had or conversations you get into or what people say to you and realize what's actually happening. Remember that just like body language, most of this isn't just nonverbal, it's subconscious. People don't know they're doing these things. They don't realize all the time that they work, but sometimes they do. But look for that pattern. Is somebody doing something in a situation all the time, so many times that you realize what they're doing? Identify it, learn how to counter it. They're doing it because they're trained to do it. Maybe you just created the environment that allowed them to get away with it. I see it all the time when people are in relationships, but I've seen it work too. Where something always happens is because nobody stood up for themselves. And that's what you have to do. So you want to be the one in charge. You want to be the one in control. You want to be the one leading as much as possible. But you don't want them to realize that. If you give them that sense of accomplishment where they're doing something for themselves, they'll feel like they made that decision. They'll feel like they're the ones that are leading. They're the ones in control. That's the goal. If you get that down and then you work in your questions, whatever information you're trying to get, whatever you're trying to get them to do, if you start out with the rapport, you got those approaches working for you like I just described, then whatever happens is they'll do the things you want. They'll tell you what you want to hear, the real stuff, the information, the facts that you're looking for, and they'll think they chose to do it. They'll think they were in control of the situation, and that's what this is all about. And it's no different than when we ran sources. Even though it was an interrogation, we had the same goals in mind because then they walk away from there most of the time feeling good about themselves, feeling safe, feeling like everything worked out, having no idea what you were actually after or what you did to them. I do get to some people this sounds bad, like the bad form of manipulation. It's very easy to use it like that, but you don't have to. All it is is a smarter way to communicate, a smarter way to get your point across, a more efficient manner to get a conversation flowing, to get information flowing, to make things happen. Look at it from that point of view. Your attitude about it will give you away. So if you have the right attitude, the positive attitude, even if you're faking it, if it's convincing, you'll get the results you want. If it's not convincing or it's negative or you're just doing it to hurt people or get what you want out of them, they'll pick up on that quicker because that's negative. It will come through even if you don't want it to. So if you've done so already, go down to the show notes, go to the Gray Man Concepts Facebook or Twitter pages where we have daily information on this. The last few days we had some intel stuff around the world, things that were going on, different agencies we're using, as well as stuff about interrogations and rapport building. And we'll continue this series next Wednesday. Look for more information on these subjects around interrogation. After next Wednesday, we're going to start getting into more some skills and some techniques, some kind of tradecraft stuff, things you can do like live drops and dead drops and cryptography and hidden communications, things you can do that are a little more fun. We'll put a little more activity into it, some of the skills and tricks of the trade and get out of some of this theory stuff since we've been in that for quite a while now in the last few weeks. So if you enjoyed this, please give a like and share a heart on whatever platform you're on. Wherever you're hearing this, if you go to the anchor.fm page, it's the link what I, you'll find this show on and Twitter and Facebook. You'll see icons there. It's on about seven different platforms. Also look for the other show I recommend at the bottom of my show notes. And I look forward to seeing you next time right here on Gray Man Hiding in Plain Sight.